Good morning, Redemption Church. It's so nice to be in where it's warm, and um, it's so good to see you this fine morning where we're starting the Christmas season, the Advent season. You can notice we have our trees up. They're all decorated for Christmas. When you um, are a portable, have portable service set up, and this is our this is our Christmas decoration. Made me happy. Um, so I'm Debbie. I am a part of the prayer response team here at Redemption Church. I would like to especially welcome you if you are a first timer or a second timer. We have back at the back, what right when you walk in the door, there's the welcome center, welcome table. Um, just meet someone there, and we have a special gift for you. So go ahead and stop by there. We are so glad that you are here. Um, connect cards. So you have your little connect cards in the your cup holder. If you could fill that out for us, you could either put it in the, um, that's for everyone to fill out, not just the new timer, everything, everyone, if you could do that. It also has the, the QR code on there, and I think we'll have the QR code up here also for sermon notes, for a program, uh, the, uh, the announcements, for everything. If you need anything, um, in, any information, you can just scan that either on your Connect card or up when we have it up here. Um, but yeah, so if you fill that out, at least put your name and the email address on it. And then when the ushers go by, either put it in then or at the end, we'll have another opportunity for you to put that in. Um, how many of you saw the devotion, any of the devotions this week? Have you noticed how Jesse, Pastor Jesse, you know, he's from Florida. Have you noticed how he looked incredibly Pacific Northwesty <laughs> these last couple weeks? It started off with the red and black plaid, right? I mean, I noticed this right away, okay? And then to make it even better, this last week he was uh, standing with the snow. So, um, so he's acclimating just fine to our to our climate here. I grew up here, so this is you know, I noticed that right away. Okay, he's fitting right in. And um, I do encourage you to watch the devotions uh, this week. A couple of them touched me. Um, you know, sometimes it's easy to walk in the church doors and kind of put on a mask. Everything's fine. And, you know, greet, hello, hello, everything's fine. Um, and yesterday he was talking about how um, each of us have a story, our testimony, really, basically. Um, and that we have a story of like marriages being saved and just all kinds of healings happening. It was it was based on healings, um, but that really touched me. Um, and so, I would just encourage you when you come in the doors to be to be real and to tell your story. God has an amazing healing story in all of us, and let's pass that on. I just would thank you for that message this this week and. And then I'm going to pass it off to Jesse, but I need to remind you we are transitioning from Aplos to Church Center. And I think you have till the end of the year, but why wait, right? Until we can just go ahead and do it now. Um, so I'm going to pass it off to Pastor Jesse. He has something to think about the table. Hey, can we thank Debbie, everybody? Yeah. So our series that we taught last year, Reason for Hope, was to train Christians in sharing 
their faith, defending the Christian faith, to substantiate the faith of those whose faith is weak. And then this led to another series that is offered to our skeptical friends and anybody who has big questions for God, struggling with the concept of God's existence. This is called The Table, and it's led by uh, one of our deacons. He's an incredibly experienced leader in this regard. And so we're going through the very first edition of it and gathering really helpful feedback, all right? And so one of the big pieces of feedback that we got was it would be really helpful if we had testimonies, stories from people's lives, stories of transformation. And so if you would be willing to get in front of one of our cameras and just tell your story briefly in a way that would be shared as part of the table, wherein we watch these brief videos and then there's the discussion question, there's a brief video, a discussion question, a brief video, and the discussion question, and then that comprises one of a series of sessions, if one of those videos would include your story about your life before Christ, how you came to know Christ, and what, what has happened since you've known Christ, if you'd be willing to do that, would you reach out to me, or would you email us at info at redemptionwashington.com? I've also got great news. We have our Christmas schedule at last. You guys want to hear it? All right, so based on surveyed data, people are not keen on the idea or not available, not able to come in for a Christmas morning service, so here's what we're going to do. We have confirmed we have use of Theater One on Christmas Eve for a service that starts at 4.30 p.m. It's the big theater because I know you're going to have friends with you. We're going to have time to be able to do that, so, so we'll see you at 4.30 p.m. on Christmas Eve. Does that sound great? Amen. All right. And then what we'll provide, because I know it is important. It is Christmas Day. It's a Christian holiday. For crying out loud, it is Christmas, and we're supposed to have church. So here's what we're going to do. We have moved our reservation to Christmas Eve based on people's availability. However, we're going to give you something to use at home. All right. We're going to give you a brief video. We're going to give you a Bible study that you can use for your family so that after all of the chaos, after all of the wrapping paper bits finally fall down to the ground as it snows in your living room, that you, in the most important moment, I'm looking at you, especially dads. I'm looking at you, husbands, especially, all right? If you're a single mom, this is on you for now. But I want you to open the word of God. I want you to tell them the story of Jesus straight out of the Bible, straight out of Luke chapter two. And we're gonna give you a resource to be able to have Christmas service right there in your home. Does that sound good, Redemption Church? All right, we'll see you 4.30 p.m. on Christmas Eve. Would you stand with us? Let's go before the Lord. Let's worship Jesus together. I want you to sing your hearts out, Redemption Church. Worship him in spirit and in truth. Amen? Amen.
Amen. Can we celebrate that, Redemption Church? Amen. Please have a seat for a moment. You may have noticed I am not the legendary Pastor Mike. Lift him up if he would. He's not feeling well. All right. But I know he's at home watching online. And so if you guys could help 
make some noise to tell Pastor Mike that we love him and appreciate him. We love you, Pastor Mike. <laughs> Man, God is at work in this church. I'm going to need Pastor Mike. We have a cool opportunity I wanted to share with you. It's an exciting one. Uh, it's only preliminary and introductory at this point, but there's a local Christian school that's looking for a home and has expressed interest in potentially partnering with us to help us in the revival project to purchase property. And so now we go about the difficult business of looking at theological compatibility, all right, to see to it that we align with a school that as much as possible aligns with our sincerely held beliefs on the word of God. And as a result, rather than starting our own prospectus and articles of incorporation and bylaws and application for accreditation and recruiting a headmaster and hiring faculty and vetting a curriculum, we just partner with the school, right? Because we, we've got enough going on. But this was in the works from the beginning anyway. The Redemption School exists currently just as a PDF file on my Google Drive. But it was something we wanted to do. We didn't want to, when we purchased property, leave it vacant Monday through Friday anyway. So pray for this. Pray for this. If there's not a theological, theological compatibility, the Redemption Church, man, is not in a desperate position. We're ahead of schedule. Your generosity and your commitments to the Revival Project have been exciting, such that we're going to do this with or without a school. But as the timing works out well, as this school is looking for a location at the same time, it could be God's will, and we want to test and approve that. Amen, Redemption Church? So be in prayer for that because it's an exciting possibility, but we want to make sure that everything is checked out. We don't want to enter into a long-term lease with a school that rents space from us only to find out that they teach something wildly off base in their chapel service in the first week. <laughs> Surprise! So now's the time. Now's the time to get to know one another. And everything's introductory at this point. Pastor Mike and I are going to sit down with their board and their head of school and just get to know each other theologically to see if there's a fit, if there's a theological fit. And then, then we go to the, to the drawing table to see if there's a potential financial partnership as well. But in the meantime, in the meantime, thank you. If you've already committed to the Revival Project, your gifts have been a huge blessing. If you have not yet made a commitment to the Revival Project, especially now as the year comes to a close, if you have liquid assets that you're able to give, would you do that now? Because we are currently, as a young church plant, just a year old, facing the biggest obstacle that we will face financially in our church's long history. The hardest thing about church planting here, besides the culture that is largely unsaved, is the financial uh, the financial difficulty, particularly the down payment it takes to get into a building. We run on a lean budget as it is. All of our expenses are covered and we have two years of operating expenses built into the revival project. And in addition to that, we need to raise funds to be able to purchase property. Once we purchase property, as that property grows in equity, the next building campaign becomes a lot easier and you're able to grow in such a way that you could grow beyond what it's possible to fundraise. But here and now in the founding class family of the Redemption Church, we face a difficulty that will secure the future of the Redemption Church for the next century if it's God's will. So if you have not committed to the Revival Project, I want to invite you to do that. 
One family has committed $250,000 to the revival project. And I look to those who have not signed up, who have not gone to redemptionwashington.com slash revival just yet. I look to you if you have liquid assets that we could commit before the end of the year that we might enter next year, which was only supposed to be the second year of a two-year building campaign with the cash on hand to be able to purchase property at the right time in the market. So thank you for being here. Thank you for your generosity. Thank you for your giving. You understand it is difficult to buy property but God is able. Amen. Let's go before the Lord. Let's pray and let's give together. God, everything is yours. You are sovereign and you have provided every one of our needs. Lord, you own our hearts. Our souls are pointed toward heaven and so our finances follow because you're Lord in our lives, because we've surrendered to you, Jesus, we give just something back to the God who has given us everything. So now, Lord, as we give some online, some as the ushers come through the crowd now, Lord, we ask for your blessings on the givers that they would give with cheerful hearts. Would you take what is given? Would you take the commitments made to the revival project And God, would you make a way for this church plant? Would you claim ground for your church right here in the least church state in the U.S.? We named it the Revival Project because that is our hope. That is our prayer. Revival, 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 Jesus. We don't care what building it happens in. We just want you, Jesus. We want your Holy Spirit to move upon hearts. Would you have mercy on us, God? Would you bring revival in this city? In Jesus' name we pray and in Jesus' name we give. Amen. Thank you. of Matthew, God fulfills absolutely every promise he makes. His perfect faithfulness spans decades, encompasses centuries, crosses millennia. We have studied Ruth, a prequel to the Gospels. Today, we explore the fulfillment. After this, we will experience Isaiah, observing Christ's perfect fulfillment of everything that was foretold about him. Matthew 3:16 and 17 read, When Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus is the fulfillment of all hope prophesied in the Old Testament. He stands at the apex of scripture. All of history has always been his story. He is our hope. He is our savior. In him alone, we can find fulfillment. His name is Jesus. The empty tomb is the only sign that I need. The cross is all I need. Jesus is more than enough. That's all that I need. The only sign, the only wonder that we need is Jesus. Jesus is sufficient. He is more than enough. Amen, Redemption Church? When, you know, you're 
the height that I am, I go to the doctor and it shows me right in the very middle of the average height, but everybody I know seems to be taller than me. And the doctor explained, yeah, that's a global average height. <laughs> and then when I went to certain countries, I was like, oh, okay, I get it now. I wasn't used to being the tall guy. That was weird. And, you know, you know my, my wife is a towering five foot three. You never know. My dad is like six foot four and my mom is like four foot ten. So it could go anywhere with our kids and their height. And so when you coach your kids in sports, you know, we, we've played, we played football, we've played soccer, and we feel like baseball is a good sport for the short dude. You know what I mean? You know, like I'm a, I, I've always loved the Red Sox and Dustin Pedroia was MVP and I always thought that was really cool, you know, because he's like five foot three. <laughs> and so we're coaching our boys in baseball. But man, after having done all the other stuff that we've done from, from parkour to skateboarding to all that other stuff, to get them back in baseball mode was hard, especially like post-COVID. And so we went and bought some of the gear and we went to the backyard and we have the new pitchback net. And, you know, I'm trying to, get them ready for this because while we were, while we were teaching our kids how to, you know, go, take skateboards off of ramps, the other families in the Issaquah Little League were like injecting baseball excellence into their kids intravenously since they were feet high. And so our boys are like, hey, what's up? How do you play baseball? And these kids are already like, I need a scholarship. And we're like, you're 12. So we felt way behind already from day one. And, and you know, the way that it worked out, our, uh, of course, you know, the youngest brother always is going to take to it very naturally because he's been playing with older brothers his whole life. And so Ace took to it right away. Asher the Basher naturally just kind of took to it. Austin did a great job, but he's got about, it looks like he's going to be about like my height in terms of his genes and things like that. And so uh, also he hasn't played baseball since 2015. <laughs> he was five at the time. It's been a while. And some of these kids are throwing 70 mile an hour fastballs, all right? I suspect some of them might be voting too. <laughs> but that's the league that my boys got to play in. And so my bride is a nervous wreck because a 70 mile an hour fastball, you know, right to your kid's noggin means that like, he might forget English <laughs> as a result. And so we got to get him ready. You know, it's way safer to just hit the sucker than it is to get hit by it. You know, having a good swing is probably your best defense, the safest mechanism. So we're in the backyard and we're trying to prep him for it. And then it's a scary moment as a dad because I would always hold back my pitches, you know, because that's, that's my baby right there by the net. And like, I feel like I'd feel terrible if I just threw it as hard as I could and like beamed my kid right there. All right, you know, they did take a few, they did take a few, uh, they did take a few pitches to the shoulder, but we taught them well. Some of you guys were at these games, right? I see Sandy, I see Brian, I see Mark. You guys have seen this, right? One of them, one time, one of my sons took a pitch straight to the elbow and he looked to the visiting stands and he went like this and even they cheered for him and then he just power walked over to first base. Well, man, all this prep, all this coaching, trying to like get him ready for it, but also not terrify him. <laughs> like, how do you explain this? Listen, other kids your age, and some of them don't like you, are going to be given full authority with adults looking on to throw a really hard ball as hard as he can right at you, and it might hit you. Isn't this fun? What you tell them in order to be able to hit that fastball, be able to time that well, is like, I believe in you. I believe in you. All right, I believe in you. We hadn't seen it yet. 
we would go to the batting cages and kind of go up the speeds a little bit to the 35, 45 mile an hour and then get them up gradually up to the 60 mile an hour and things like that. But that's even different. That's even different because that machine is pretty consistent. It's more consistent than dad. Just ask my kids. <laughs> Boom. I'm sorry. But man, when it actually came time, little Austin, the shortest guy on his team, was also beloved, had the greatest attitude on his team, was the heart and soul of that team, came through, bases loaded, clutch, double, and nailed that thing into the outfield, the fastest ball I had seen all day. And he nailed it. Give it up for Austin, everybody. He came through. And then it was, oh, it just warmed my heart to see the dugout just empty and the whole team comes out and they're cheering for Austin and Austin just disappears into the crowd. I lose sight of him immediately. <laughs> but man, when it counted, our belief in him came through with beautiful, wondrous event. You know, because we believed it, because Austin believed it, he saw it when it mattered. When you come before God, if your belief in him has been contingent upon signs and wonders, that is not belief, that is not faith. But when you believe, you're more likely to see the signs and wonders that you crave. And as a result, your faith is truly faith, not by sight, but by faith, being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you do not See, Hebrews 11.1, 1, I believe, gives a very clear working definition for what faith is. Sure of what you hope for, certain of what you do not see. But this was not the approach of the Pharisees and the critics of Jesus in his day. Our church is moving verse by verse to the Gospel of Matthew. Debbie mentioned our devotions. Those take us every day, just piece by piece, through the text. And then they lead up to our sermon text most of the time. And then the sermon text... Today, it's going to come from Matthew, right, uh, as well, Matthew chapter 18, or, or rather chapter 16, verses 1 through 12, and then our curriculum is going to pick up in verse 13 and go through verse 20, and then the next devotion this week is devotion 534. So between our devotions and our curriculum and our sermon, all of these team up to take us verse by verse to the gospel of Matthew, and we've arrived here in Matthew chapter 16. If you need sermon notes, they're available at this QR code, all right? Or you can also click at redemptionwashington.com, the button that says program 12 slash four, right? So this, this QR code will give you some sermon notes. I can come back to it later if you guys, if you guys need it. Here is something that leads us up. This is, this is from the previous chapter, but I wanna give context. This is a pivotal chapter in the Gospel of Matthew. Something's gonna change. Jesus has been covert about his miracles. He began to confront the Pharisees in chapters 12 and 13. That's where we saw our sermon on what's called the quote-unquote unforgivable sin. We described that as the sin that will not be forgiven because the one who commits that sin will not repent of it. These Pharisees, in full face value, prima facie, obvious observation of Jesus working a beautiful divine miracle and then calling it evil, saying that he did it by the power of Beelzebul, they commit blasphemy. 
this is the sin that will not be forgiven. This is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. We saw this sermon and that, that sermon in that text as well, that there are, everyone who commits blasphemy will be forgiven, but he who commits blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Now, these Pharisees continued to become more and more hostile toward Jesus. The plot for the murder of Jesus is about to be underway and Jesus has confronted them. We saw this on our devotions in Matthew chapter 15, verse six. In this way, you have nullified the word of God because of your tradition. This is something that is alive and well today. This is a practice that exists today in modern day churches. Jesus in the current chapter that we're in, Matthew chapter 16 is going to predict for the first of multiple times in the gospel of Matthew, his coming death, crucifixion, resurrection, and every time he predicts it throughout the text, he adds more details. By the way, I'm gonna be betrayed. By the way, it's gonna, I'm also gonna be given over to the Gentiles. And every time he introduces this, every time he speaks about this, he gives more and more clarity. But he tells them overtly and clearly and outright, my crucifixion is coming. This is also the chapter wherein he makes this prophecy over Peter. Can we all thank Caleb, everybody? <laughs> Everything you do, buddy. This, uh, this is also the chapter where he looks at Peter and says, you are Cephas and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. It is Peter who would get up and make the proclamation at Pentecost in Acts chapter two, preaching an expository sermon on Joel chapter two, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The Holy Spirit poured out upon the Jews gathered for the, the feast of Pentecost. And then in Acts chapter 10, Peter would again, give the gospel this time at Cornelius's house. The Holy Spirit pours out upon Gentiles. So this pivotal chapter provides the prophetic foundation for the church as we know it. If you come from a Catholic background, you may bristle at my saying that while I speak to you in a church that currently meets in a movie theater, but whose building campaign is underway, right? whose elder board does not abide by or find a place within what is described as the apostolic succession of the Catholic Church. But within the Catholic Church, we've deviated. We've ascribed traditions that nullify the word of God. We as Protestants do not disregard church history, but because of church history, we teach the word alone, sola scriptura. And so we do not teach transubstantiation. We do not teach that you must confess to a priest. We do not, we do not teach the teachings of the Vatican, the perpetual virginity of Mary, or ascribe to the wholly made up view of the papacy. Rather, sola scriptura, only scripture. This chapter is why we are the way we are. As a biblical church, we hold to the very confession of Peter. We are filled with the same Holy Spirit that poured out that day at Pentecost. We ascribe to the belief in the true word of God, 
free from corruption, inerrant in its original manuscripts, the word of God, all of which is breathed out by him and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is where Jesus foretold how the church would be born and how the redemption church currently is. Amen, redemption church? He's our Jesus too, amen? We believe in Jesus. We are filled with the Spirit. We are grateful for the confession of Peter. And no, we don't need Peter's corpse under the building. In fact, that would probably get in the way of the water lines. Rather, we stand upon the confession of Peter. We're filled with the very Spirit of God. And we do not nullify the Word of God because of tradition. Rather, we believe wholly in Scripture and Scripture alone. Let's go to Matthew chapter 16. The Pharisees and Sadducees approached and tested him, asking him to show them a sign from heaven. I know I'm only one verse in, but can I stop for a minute? Because if you weren't with us, you might say, hmm, interesting setup. No, it's not. It's obnoxious. All right, do you remember last week's sermon? Raise your hand if you're here for last week's sermon. We saw multiple tens of thousands of people fed. They saw it too. They saw the paralytic walk. They saw the eyes of the blind open. They heard the tongues of the mute released. They observed the lame walking. They drank the wine at the wedding. Jesus had walked on water. All of this was done up until this point. It is absurd in the highest to see Jesus perform miracle upon miracle upon miracle upon miracle upon healing, upon prophecy, upon demonic exorcism, upon you name it, and then say, what sign are you going to give us? Do you see what I mean, how it changes the tone when you know that context? All right, they, they tested him, asking him to show them a sign from heaven. Here's verse two. He replied, when evening comes, you say, it will be good weather because the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy because the sky is red and threatening. You know how to read the appearance of the sky, but you can't read the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Then he left them and went away. We're gonna talk about what this means, all right? The text continues, all right? Rather, the same text comes up in Matthew chapter 12, verse 38, all right? So this is the second time we've seen Jesus in the gospel of Matthew refer to the sign of Jonah. What is the sign of Jonah, all right? Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. See, do you see the pattern? This was just four chapters ago. He answered them, an evil and adulterous generation demands a sign of one. There it is again, these same two descriptors in the same context. Why evil and why adulterous? Demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. And there's Jonah again. And this again was chapter 12. For as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, so the son of man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. 
the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at Jonah's preaching. And look, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Look, something greater than Solomon is here. So we've seen this in Matthew chapter 12. Now again in Matthew chapter 16, the Pharisees and Sadducees watch Jesus perform a miracle and then have the gall to ask him what sign he will perform for them. And then Jesus' response is now, for the second time, the only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. Let's go back and let's look at Jonah. Jonah's a fascinating story. It's become archetypal in ancient mythology and lore. We see it imitated in famous art. We see it recapitulated in the, the story of Pinocchio, for example. And we see it even come back to the surface once more in modern day pop psychology about the notion of this heroic journey into the belly of the beast to save your father. Here's Jonah chapter two. Here's the, here's the OG. This is the original. This is it. Jonah, this is chapter two, prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. I called to the Lord in my distress and he answered me. I cried out for help from deep inside Sheol, you heard my voice. We're going to talk about this. You threw me into the depths, into the heart of the seas, and the current overcame me. All your breakers and your billows swept over me. How many of you guys have seen this language in the Psalms before? Right? Jonah has forsaken God's call. He's in the city, he's, he's forsaken God's call. He's been called to Nineveh to proclaim the coming wrath of God. And he does not want to. He'd rather the fireworks come. And so he tries to sail away to another city that was a bit more known for its, its economic prosperity. And then this storm comes upon the boat. And as a result, Jonah knows what's going on. It's God. He's not allowing me to run away from the calling that's on my life. And so he is cast willingly over the boat, and he is then immediately gobbled up by this big fish. Now, the translation of Jonah chapter 2 in the CSB is quite accurate to the original. This is, this is verse 4, but I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look once more toward your holy temple. Here's where we see repentance in Jonah's heart. The water engulfed me up to the neck. The watery depths overcame me. Look at this. This is often, this is often overlooked, All right? Seaweed was wrapped around my head. You ever noticed that before? I sank to the foundations. Look at how, look at how drastic language, the foundations of the mountains. The earth's gates shut behind me forever. Then you raised my life from the pit, Lord my God. It's quite possible that Jonah didn't just hang out inside a blue whale, which is not indigenous to the coast of Joppa anyway. It's quite possible that Jonah died, that he's drowned. The dude has seaweed around his head. That's a bad day. Your surfing trip has failed. Okay, if you have seaweed wrapped around your head, that's an issue, okay? 
I sank to the foundations of the mountains, the earth's gates shut behind me forever. He's either being really dramatic about having swallowed some water, or that dude's dead. Then you raised my life from the pit, Lord my God. Sheol, this word back here in verse two, is the place of the dead. This is where you go when you die, whether you're good or evil in the Old Testament. You ever wondered about that? What happens in the Old Testament? Jesus on the cross said to the man next to him, today you will be with me in where, Redemption Church? Paradise. This is massively, massively pivotal in the eternal realm. Old Testament saints in the upper, not the lower, but the more pleasant experience within Sheol, referred to, at least in the Redemption Church, as Abraham's embrace, the presence of Abraham. Drawing upon Jesus' parable about the rich man and Lazarus, he describes Sheol. You have this upper place where it is pleasant, and then there's a huge chasm that separates the two experiences, and then there's this lower place. And this collectively, all of it, the upper and the lower, it's all referred to as Sheol. So whether you were a follower of Yahweh or not, you went to Sheol, but you had one of two experiences based on your adherence to the law of Moses and anticipation of the Messiah to come or your denial that Yahweh is God. But what Jesus said on the cross indicates something absolutely paradigmatically transformative that that day this believer would be with him, not in Sheol, but in paradise. And so, We'll get to 1 Peter chapter 3 one day. I will geek out over this. I cannot wait to teach that passage to the Redemption Church, but suffice to say that everything changes. And upon Jesus' work on the cross, now we refer to... One day to be reunited with his baby boy, son conceived with Bathsheba, but his son would not leave Sheol to come to him. That Jonah would describe going to Sheol echoes these prophecies about the Holy One, the Messiah, the Christ, that you will not let your Holy One see decay, that he would not, he would not 
remain in Sheol. This is, this is kind of the basis for a lot of the controversy over the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. If you see some various versions of this, you'll notice this ancient confession of the faith of the church would say that Jesus descended into hell. And then, depending on just how old school your church is, they may change that as well. They may change that wording and remove the wording of Jesus descending into hell. It even affects one of the songs that we sing called the Creed that echoes this statement of belief, this I believe. But what Jonah is describing is either going down into the depths in the belly of the fish or dying and being resurrected. Do you see how this affects what Jesus has said now twice in the gospel of Matthew? The only sign, the only wonder you're going to get is the sign of Jonah such that in the same way that Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, the son of man will be in the heart of the earth for three days. This is what gave rise to the speculation that Jesus went to hell. Rather, describes Jesus in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And three days later, he raises again from the dead. So the sign of Jonah could have been typified more on the nose than we originally speculate. The Pinocchio version falls pretty short if this interpretation is the accurate one. That Jonah had more than just a bad day in a fish, that the dude died and was resurrected and spat up on the shores of Joppa. By the way, not coincidentally, the same very town where Peter would then be called to the house of Cornelius, where the Holy Spirit would pour it upon Gentiles. That was why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. He didn't want those icky Gentiles receiving the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Too late. And that's the very city where Jonah would be spat up on centuries prior. I called out to the Lord in my distress. He answered me. I cried out for help from deep inside Sheol. You heard my voice. You threw me into the depths, into the heart of the seas, and the current overcame me. All your breakers and your billows swept over me. But I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look once more towards your holy temple. The water engulfed me up to the neck. The watery depths overcame me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. Do you see how he escalates? the terminology and the severity of the trauma of the event and the watery depths. I sank to the foundations of the mountains. The earth's gate shut behind me forever. Then you raised my life from the pit, Lord my God. You can see that this is capitalized here to indicate that it is a proper noun. As my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you, to your holy temple. You see this? As my life was fading away, See, there could be some credence to this belief that Jonah may be a little bit underplayed in the VeggieTales version. Now, VeggieTales theology is actually pretty good. I think they have produced the most theologically accurate rendering of the story of Esther ever made. It's great. One critical difference, rather than people being put to death publicly, they are banished to the land of perpetual tickling. But other than that, the theology is pretty spot on. Now, the VeggieTales version of the story of Jonah would not align with this particular interpretation, that Jonah dies and is resurrected miraculously in a foreshadowing of the only sign, the only wonder that the critics of Jesus would get. Those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. But as for me... I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. 
So whichever your interpretation of the classic story of Jonah, whether it's that this dude died and was resurrected or it's more VeggieTales friendly, all of it hinges upon the amount of time that happens before this word, then. Because we see that his life is fading away in verse seven. And then, verse 10, that's when the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. All right, if that is the case, it would probably make more sense that it was a whale shark because those are indigenous to those waters anyway. So it also answers that famous question. What was this fish? Here is, here is our, our text. Jesus has given this sign of Jonah teaching and it's all in answer to another request for a sign. He, he kind of knocks on them for being better at predicting the weather than they are at reading the signs of the times. Consider the woefully futile position of being better at predicting weather patterns than you are understanding the truth of God. That you're better at knowing whether it's going to rain this afternoon than you are knowing if God is fulfilling prophecy right in front of your face. That was the accusation against the Pharisees. All right, today it'll be stormy because the sky is red and, and threatening. You know how to read the appearance of the sky, but you can't read the signs of the times. That's verse three. Do not abuse these verses as everyone who has ever made a prediction about the timing of the second coming of Christ ever has. They stop in Matthew chapter 16, forgetting that there's a 24th chapter in the gospel of Matthew. Finish the book. Because Jesus tells overtly and clearly no one knows the time or the hour, not even the son, only the father. Jesus doesn't even know the time of the second coming. So you don't, okay? Scott Farkas, you don't know. Don't pretend to. So Jesus tells them you're better at reading the weather than you are at knowing, and by, and by the way, actually, this is, a, this is a funny tradition. This is what it's like to grow up in Florida. These are, these are hurricane projections. We're also not that good at predicting the weather. Can I just point that out? So just imagine the sad state of affairs when it comes to understanding prophecy. Because according to Jesus, we're better at weather than we are at understanding prophecy. When we started the Redemption Church five minutes ago, I told you, I want us to preach like Baptists. I want us to worship like charismatics who abide by 1 Corinthians 14. And as we know, our beloved Naomi is moving on to, to uh, further ministry training and to serve with a team uh, in Hawaii next year. We're speaking with people who can help lead worship for the Redemption Church. And one of those guys reached out to us, and we are, uh, or I reached out to him. We had a long conversation, and he went and watched our series on 1 Corinthians because 1 Corinthians chapter 14 just tells you God's instructions for the spiritual gifts in worship. And I just knew, like, if you can watch that series and still want to come lead with us, then he's probably our guy. And if he gets, if he gets offended by the teaching of 1 Corinthians 14, then it's probably not going to be a good theological fit. And he said, Jesse, I've got news for you. You guys don't preach like any Baptists I've ever heard because you actually preach that text. <laughs> so I've got bad news. We don't preach like Baptists, evidently. Is that okay, Redemption Church? All right, we're biblical, right? 
So this was, this, was the, uh, this was the original aspiration. This was the hope that we would preach like Baptists, meaning we're very biblical, only the word of God all the way through, but we would worship in a way that is spirit-filled, all abiding by the restrictions and, and clear, clear boundaries given by the word of God in 1 Corinthians 14. I've got a soft spot in my heart for our charismatic brothers and sisters, and I want you to have a home here. There is one woman who's a part of the Redemption Church, and, and, and she said it was like when she came to the Redemption Church and she saw the expository preaching, that's what this is called, we just go through the word of God. She said, it was like finding a whole wing of my house that my parents didn't say was there. And this huge banquet was set out and it was just the word of God, expository preaching. She was like, wow, why didn't anybody tell me this was here? And so I love that story. I love that story. I love that testimony. But I have charismatic friends from charismatic denominations who will go too far in requesting signs and wonders from God. The only growing denomination in the United States right now is a charismatic denomination. Everybody else is either plateauing or in decline. And if you're plateauing while the population is growing, by default, that's as good as decline. But the basis for some, I cannot speak to all these testimonies and I will not speak condemningly of our brothers in Christ. But what I do know from my own firsthand relationships is that many of these stories are based on signs and wonders. The desire that you would come to church, that you experience an emotional stimulus, that you would witness something that is physically miraculous. And this is the reason for your faith. Jesus' word is critical here. It's, it's in verse 39. I want you guys to look at this, all right? The, the operative term is this one, okay? Everybody say that word with me. Demands. That an evil and adulterous generation demands a sign. And so I would ask you, my charismatic friend, is this the way that you approach worship? That you require a sign and a wonder of God. Would you take this text and its clear warning delicately to heart? But I don't believe, I don't believe that the desire you would go to church and experience something miraculous is sinful. This word is demands, okay? Where you show up to church and you demand, I better see physics broken today or I'm taking my tithe dollars elsewhere. Don't demand it. Campbell, you haven't met your miracle quota. Don't demand the sign and the wonder. But my skeptical friend, I love you too. My warning to you has to be a little bit heavier because in many regards, there are skeptics who do exactly this. Demand a sign, a wonder. I will believe in God when he performs for me. And that request, that demand might even sound like an earnest heartfelt prayer. Save my daughter from her cancer. And if you don't, I will not believe in you. Jesse, how could such an earnest prayer be considered evil or adulterous? This is Jesus speaking. 
to demand that Jesus perform a miracle for you is precisely the ethic at play among the Pharisees who had already witnessed multiple miracles. They ate the bread. They saw the paralytic dance. They were there for all of these. And yet they demanded more. The truth is that you will not believe because you've seen miracles. But you're more likely to see miracles if you believe. Just ask everybody who was there at Doddfield, Issaquah Little League that day. If you demand the sign and the wonder, you have positioned yourself as God. And you have positioned God as your petulant performer. God, in your view, by default, is the monkey who dances when you wind the box. Perform, or I don't believe in you. Do you see the fallacious nature of this premise? If you believe Anything is possible. This is what Jesus says to the father of the boy who is afflicted by demonic possession. Everything is possible for him who believes. Do you know who witnessed the miraculous healings? Many of them were the people who believed in Jesus already. Jesus was covert about his healings. He was undercover with his miracles. It was not yet his time for his ministry to go fully public. And so he would heal a man of leprosy and then tell him, look, don't tell anybody, just go to the priest and make the sacrifices required by Moses. And word would begin to spread. It was his disciples who had already answered the call, come follow me. They were the ones who are the front row seat to miracle after miracle after miracle. And then as we get to the final chapters, you'll see that even some of them struggled in their faith to the very end. Even one of them will be filled with the devil, the, the, the miracles, the signs, the wonders, no matter how emotionally appealing they may seem, are still, still faulty. A priori. I'll believe in you if you give me a sign and you give me a wonder. Because the truth is, you'll get addicted to the signs. You'll be dependent upon the wonders. And in some cases, our belief is as cheap as chill bumps. If I just get an emotional fix, then I'll come back for more. And if I don't get it, I'll go to where I get the emotional fix. And now we have just reinvented the very teaching we were warned about in 2 Timothy chapter four. I've got itchy ears. I want you to tell me what I want to hear. Or I've got a needy emotional heart. I want you to make me feel a certain way. That music better be good, Campbell. You see, you demand a sign, you demand a wonder, and you hold your belief hostage to no avail because God is simply God, whether you believe in him or not. What is the nature of Romans 10, 9? That you confess Jesus as Lord. That's why we do not, we deliberately do not at the Redemption Church use that wording, make Jesus Lord. You will never hear us use the words, invite Jesus into my heart, as beautiful as those expressions are and poetically sincere as they were by those who coined them. The text says, confess Jesus as Lord. It means that you cannot make Jesus anything. He is Lord. You just confess what has always been true about him since before the foundations of the earth. Amen, church? 
So you just admit the truth. He's Lord. He's God. Whether he brings the healing you crave and that you desire or not, he's God. You confess that he's Lord and you will be saved. And then you will more likely see God work a miracle on your behalf. I do know of testimonies that were born from miracles. They're seldom. They're few. They're far between. The majority of the people that I know who confess Christ as Lord do so because the Holy Spirit of God gripped them by the heart. And they became in perfect accordance with Romans. Romans 10, 9, utterly convinced to their core that God raised Jesus from the dead. Now, what is the wording of Romans 10, 9? Have you ever heard it before? It's an unfamiliar verse. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be, amen. That is the salvation story. Very seldom does it begin with a miracle on demand. And when it does, Oftentimes, you got to go back and get your next miraculous fix over and over again. Some of the most unfaithful people in the Bible are those who bore witness to the most physics-defying, cataclysmic miracles ever in the history of the world. Why evil and adulterous, though, Jesse? Why is it evil to demand a sign? It is evil because it was blasphemous of the Pharisees to watch Jesus perform multiple miracles and say, he does that by the power of Satan. It was evil of them to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit of God and call Jesus the devil. That was evil. So this generation he will use as a term to describe moving forward in the gospel of Matthew to refer to the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the writers of the law, an evil generation. But why adulterous? That doesn't seem to make sense. Adultery. Here's my interpretation of this descriptor, evil and adulterous of a generation to require that God perform signs and wonders to keep you believing in him. Like you're his landlord. What is adultery? The man who commits adultery has a bride, but he forsakes her. He's been given in his life the presence, the sacred company of a daughter of Eve, a representative of the church herself, the very bride of Christ now personified in your context of your marriage as your wife, a holy woman of God who is filled with the spirit of God and given unique spiritual gifts to serve in the context of the church, a co-heir right there alongside you before Christ and one to whom you've been called by God to sacrifice yourself. You've been called as a husband to go to the cross for her the way that Christ went to the cross for the church, to give yourself up for her. And she is beautiful. She is everything you could ever need and more. There's not a man on this planet who deserves the wife that he has. And the adulterer, having been given everything, will forsake her and look for more. It was adulterous of the Pharisees' generation to have been given everything and forsake it to seek more. Jesus had worked miracle upon miracle. He had given the Sermon on the Mount, the apex upon which the old covenant would pivot into the new for crying out loud. And yet they sought more, 
forsaking what was given to them by God. Does that make sense? The use of the descriptor adulterous to demand a sign and wonder redemption church? An evil and adulterous generation demands a sign. And I love Jesus's response. When you go to Jesus and you're like, do what I say. Look what his response is. No. Because you've demanded it, you're not going to get it. Do you see the irony there? See the futility in this approach? I'll believe in you if you do what I say. And God's like, nope. Not only won't you believe, but I won't do it. Because you've demanded it. As though you ordered God around. If you could order God around, he wouldn't be worthy of worship. Why do you want to worship a God who's smaller than you and has to do what you say? Such a God would not be worthy of worship. So we've seen this recapitulated from Matthew 12 to Matthew chapter 16. Look at what happens in the text as the story continues in verse five. The disciples reached the other shore and they had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus told them, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They were discussing among themselves, <laughs> we didn't bring any bread. <laughs> this is classic. This is classic. Do you remember the story of Nicodemus? Jesus is speaking with Nicodemus and says, if, that you must be born again. And then Nicodemus is like, that sounds gross. That's in the Jesse Campbell translation. And he's taking a spiritual teaching, literally. The woman at the well, Jesus says, you must drink, if you, whoever drinks of this living water will never thirst again. And she's like, that sounds great because the lines at Costco are insane. Can I get some of that? Living water, please. <laughs> we take these spiritual teachings in literal terms and it just goes right over our heads. That was the case here for the disciples. They reached the other shore and they'd forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus warned them, watch out for the, the, the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. We've seen this one recently. The, the word leaven, most of the time in a parable represents something like a false teaching, like the legalism of the Pharisees. All right, this, this idea that you have to add on to the work of salvation, that you have to do some sort of good deed to elevate your standing with God. That's the leaven of the Pharisees. In a previous example, however, the leaven was actually a good thing, the kingdom of God, which permeates the whole loaf. Aware of this, Jesus said, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves that you do not have bread? Don't you understand yet? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000? and how many baskets you collected? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many large baskets you collected? Why is it you don't understand that when I tell you, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, it wasn't about bread. Then they understood that he had not told them to beware of the leaven in bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This legalism, this, okay, perform for me, God, give me signs, give me wonders, and I'll believe in you, was asked by the legalists. It was asked by the Pharisees who had already seen an abundance of signs, an abundance of warnings. My skeptical friend, beware that you do not repeat the same exact, same exact demand. Watch out, watch out. All right, my Catholic friend, watch out. My charismatic friend, watch out. 
everyday average Joe member of the Redemption Church, watch out. See to it that you do not demand a sign and a wonder from God. I told my son, I believe in you before he hit the clutch double. Before. When we were living in the hospital and our son Aiden was dying, I had resolved in my mind that I would pray even after the heart monitor rang out its ugly monotone once again for a miracle. Even after his heart stopped, I knew that I would still pray, God save him, God save my boy. And this was because I determined that it would not be for a lack of faith on his father's part, but that it would be the decreed and expressed and exercised will of God that he would have died when he died. It was a foregone conclusion that I would pray this prayer no matter what happened. This prayer I knew was likely to come, but it was preceded by numerous prayers to God for a miracle, prayers that were answered, prayers that made medical history. We got to have a phone call with the first recipient of a 3D printed tracheal implant. He called us to speak to us. And with tears in our eyes, we raise hands toward heaven to hear his beautiful voice. The clinical field trial that led to that life-saving surgery for that man started with Aiden Isaiah Campbell. God had performed miracle after miracle after miracle in his life, saving him over and over again. The get yourselves ready and bring your family in town because these are his last moments conversations with the doctors happened dozens of times over the course of months. But there did on May 27th come that day where we did see the ugly monitor sing its ugly tone. And I did pray exactly what I knew that I would pray. And then I did get up and stand and share the gospel over my son's tiny casket. Because God's still worthy of worship. He's still good. Even when he doesn't give the sign and he doesn't give the wonder. It was difficult to go make hospital visits after that. It was difficult to once again ask God, would you heal this child now? But I commend you, if you have such faith, whereupon you would ask God for a sign, for a wonder, God would not give it, but you would go again to him and ask him once more. You see, I do not need the resurrection of my son to solidify my faith. I did not need the healing of my baby boy to solidify my faith in Jesus. It was a foregone conclusion. Jesus is Lord no matter what happens here. You do not need another sign or another wonder. You do not need God to heal your cancer, to believe in him. Jesus is enough. You do not need another sign and another wonder. Would a miraculous healing be amazing, Redemption Church? Absolutely. But is our faith predicated upon that? No. Jesus is enough. The cross is sufficient. The empty tomb is enough for us. The sign of Jonah, the death of the Son of God, and his resurrection is all we will ever need. It is enough for us. The cross is enough. The empty grave is enough. Jesus is enough. So by the power of the Holy Spirit of God, if you're my skeptical friend and you've been holding your belief in God hostage in futility 
Acting as though God has to do what you say before you believe in him, knowing that's a surefire way to not see a miracle from God. Would you confess Jesus is Lord? Would you confess the truth? Would you acknowledge the eternal reality that predates you by countless millennia and timelessness thereafter ever before? Would you confess what will always be true? Ad infinitum into the future for all of eternity? Jesus is Lord. Whether you get healed or not, whether you see the miracle or you don't, the truth is that Jesus is Lord. That is the first prayer that you pray. That is the first confession that you make. Would you stand with us, church? I want to pray on behalf of believers and non-believers The ushers are going to come through and you have the opportunity to fill out on a connect card whether you've given your life to Christ today. If you need to be baptized today, we have a heated baptistry. We've got you covered. We can baptize you anytime. Would you give your life to Christ today? Would you confess that Jesus is Lord today? Would you, if you're a Christian and you've been holding your intimacy with God hostage over demanding a sign and a wonder in light of this text, would you confess, would you repent, be restored to fellowship with God? Let's go before him. God, I have been petulant. I've been just like the Pharisees in Matthew 16. I've been requiring you, as if that were my position, to give me signs, to give me wonders, when the sign of Jonah is all that I need. The ministry of Jesus from death to life is all that I need. God, forgive me. God, I want to pray on behalf of Christians who have struggled in this. Jesus, you're more than enough. You're more than enough. You are Lord no matter what you do. I will understand an eternity future and the perfection of your redeemed plan, the perfection of heaven where you wipe every tear from our eyes. The old order of things has passed away. The dwelling of God is with men. On that day, my pain will disappear absolutely. But until that day, I will trust you. I will ask you for miracles. And if they're your will, they will take place. But my belief in you is steadfast. I want to pray on behalf of my skeptical friend. God, I came to this church for some free movie tickets. But Lord, I've received instead free salvation. I believe that these words that Jesus spoke in this text are true. And God, I confess that I've been demanding things of you. And that's not my place. You're God. I'm the sinner. I confess that I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I confess that the wages of my sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. I believe you, Jesus. I believe that you are the way and the truth and the life. And there's no way I can come to God the Father except through Jesus. So, not demanding signs, not demanding wonders, just confessing the truth. By the power of the Holy Spirit, I confess with my mouth what has always been true, what will always be true. Jesus is Lord. 
Redemption Church, would you say Jesus is Lord? Say it. Jesus is Lord. I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. God, let me be saved. Let me be saved. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you let us know on the connect card if you've given your life to Christ today. Let's worship the Lord together as we close. If you need prayer for anything, our team is right here to pray with you.
love you, Redemption Church. Thank you for joining us online today at Redemption Church. My name is Mike Smith, and I'm the associate pastor here at Redemption Church. Now, the next best step you could take would be to get involved with an online or in-person small group here at Redemption Church. Through a small group, you will be able to have the opportunity to ask questions and to share your burdens with others who care about what's going on in your life and the lives of others in our community. Now remember, when you go online to sign up for a small group, there's many options that you can give to this ministry. From all of us at Redemption Church, we wish you a great day.